You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER Flex and Herds for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And in our final discrepancy, in our final betrayal, Herds, we are going to be speaking today about the Guy Ritchie adaptations of Sherlock Holmes starring Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. As always, when we discuss these things, we are going to try and keep the general discussion about the movie in the beginning part of the show, and we'll be jumping into more spoilers and direct plot stuff in the second half, so feel free to stick around even if you haven't seen the film. We hope we can bring you along for the ride. So, Hertz. Flex. These movies, Herds, I think were perhaps the first sin against literature you committed on this show. The first time we spoke about movies was these movies in our very first episodes on The Three Taps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Bringing it all back around. Uh-huh. Here we are at the end of this of this big circle right back to Robert Downey Jr.'s incredible chiseled jawline, stubbled <laughs> chin. His quirky personality. Look- I'm just saying this might be the final episode. This might be the end. I don't know where we can go from here. I don't think that we can reach higher heights than talking about this quirky, insane uh, adaptation that fully embraces the trashiness uh, of, of Sherlock Holmes adaptations. Um, no, I'm I'm really glad that we've finished the the holy trinity of Sherlock Holmes adaptations with, with BBC Sherlock and Elementary and finally the Guy Ritchie uh, adaptations. I, I promise we will not be doing the unholy trinity of Sherlock Gnomes and Sherlock and Watson and whatever the other one is I don't remember. I don't I don't think it matters. If we look, if we get around to April April Fools next year and there's interest maybe but like oh that might just do me in. But no, I uh I loved getting to sit down and re-experience this story because I have seen both these movies before. This is not a, a fresh experience for me uh, on the herd side of the table. But I, I had forgotten how entertaining the first movie is and I had completely forgotten the second half of the second movie because of how terrible it is. So it was a good time. So these movies came out in 2009 and 2011, respectively. Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows, directed by Guy Ritchie. And they did really well. Um, I, you know, I never really considered them to be as successful as they were, but looking back at the the numbers that they pulled and, you know, how they were able to turn around a sequel with a much bigger budget was was pretty impressive. And you can definitely see watching the first film how they kind of earned that. It's a lot of fun. It gets through a lot. Yeah, it's very smart in like weird ways. Uh, and there's rumors of another sequel on the horizon, maybe coming out next year, which we'll have to check out. I'll, I'll have to drag you to the cinemas. The first, you know, Sherlock Holmes movie is surprisingly down to earth for the most part, which really plays in its favor. The thing that stood out to me, because I haven't watched these movies in a while and I wasn't a smart, you know, critical thinking theater goer back in the day, but the thing that I realized that really pulls that movie together is its sound design from the kind of chippy London theme that plays right at the start of the movie that gets continually remixed through fight scenes and through drama scenes. And at the end of the movie, like that theme as it progresses, as we watch Sherlock unravel the mystery is fantastic. The fight scene in the, in the, the pit fight and like in the inventors decrepit old house. And like, there's so many excellently put together scenes where 
the soundtrack and the uh, the uh, there's, there's a term for it. The, the sounds that are actually happening in the scene, the foley, yeah, the foley are working together. You know, there is no conflict. There's always these different layers of the sounds of you know a fish striking a man's chest and metal tapping on a pipe, and then the shouting and there's music, but it's all building towards the same climax, and it hits at the exact moment that you want it to, and that release of tension is is so excellently orchestrated. I It's perfect. It's a perfect soundtrack, I think. The soundtrack itself by Hans Zimmer is excellent in so many levels because it has this beautiful out-of-tune piano that is so eloquently worked into the standard Hans Zimmerisms that you might know from his other works. And it has such a unique flavor that unfortunately starts to kind of wane in the second movie. But the just overall, the texture and the way the themes are reused and recontextualized is beautiful. And the thing I love about the sound design in the Foley is the way that it is always diegetic from a perspective that you aren't necessarily expecting. So, for example, when someone gets stunned, you know, it might not be the character who gets stunned whose headspace we're following. Like, it's not necessarily Sherlock who gets stunned and suddenly everything goes out. It's like a, a mook. But because you have that sudden disappearing of the atmosphere, the ringing of the ear, and all of the sound effects are allowed to just kind of build this other atmosphere, it turns what are really very chaotic fights into excellent, easy-to-follow Hollywood schlock action. You're right. The music holds those scenes together uh, because you're right. Like, the scenes are very fast-paced. In particular, the the fight scene that I always come back to, um, mostly because it's immediately followed by the worst scene in the movie, but... It's the fight. It's the fight scene in the like alchemist lab where uh, we have Watson and Sherlock, and Watson is kind of begrudgingly there. He says, "You know, I got ten minutes to help you out. I know you couldn't survive without me because he's he's going off to to you know be with his loved one." It's, it's like the whole through line of these movies is that Watson is trying to get away from Sherlock and be with his love Mary. He's like, "Oh, you got ten minutes for this investigation, then I'm leaving." But of course, then two like thug types show up with their. Uh, I guess sort of older brother kind of looking character. He's not actually their brother, but like huge French strongman. Yes. yes. Huge French strongman. And so Watson in the background is fighting these two thugs while Sherlock is giving us the kind of, uh, the, the primary focus as he's fighting this strong man, um, which is, who, who is lovingly foreshadowed, uh, when Sherlock passes through a carnival earlier in the movie and we get to see like a kind of, kind of a theatrical looking strong man. Like, they're probably like using a bunch of tricks to like seem more impressive than they are. And then we get to see the actual strong man who kicks Sherlock's butt. Oh, it's beautiful. But yeah, we like we have this strong focus on this mano a mano fight, brains over brawn uh, with Sherlock in the sky. Um, but we also have what's in the background who is not as in focus, but is still just as like well choreographed and it's just adding, you know, more and more flavor to the scene. And I mean, this movie is always remembered for the way that it does the fight scenes where we go into Sherlock's head, they describe what's happening and then we cut outside and go on with what was described. And that really helps in the super confusing moments of the fight. But in particular, that scene in the alchemist's lab, uh, really shows that the the movie can do fight scenes without that additional aid. And the sound design and the way that you can kind of see the background elements playing off in the background even when the camera isn't on them means that it always feels like the scene is moving or something is always happening. It always, it feels very, very real, um, which I think is the strongest thing I can say about the certainly the first movie. It feels like this is a real thing that is happening in front of you. As I mentioned, there is a scene that breaks this rule, 
Um, I, I want to get into that a little bit later when we talk about the second movie, because it's kind of the same flaw, right? It's the same flaw. But I think that it is excellent to point out that all of these scenes feeling very grounded and real, aside from, you know, the occasional goofy cinema thing, like an electric zapper that can throw someone back 20 feet or whatever. Which is amazing. It, it is amazing. But it is an excellent piece of creative contrast to the subtext and the main plot of the film, which is, is Lord Blackwood, the arch nemesis in the first movie, actually using magic or is it just parlor tricks, right? So having the entire film be very grounded sets the expectation for that main plot in ways outside of the actual narrative itself. It should be said, actually, like, we say it's grounded and that there's this magic shenanigans going on. And in any other movie, I would throw that out the window and say, you know, magic isn't possible in this grounded setting. But because, as you say, we have this, like, cattle prod uh, that Sherlock doesn't know what it is. And in the earliest scenes of the film, he's trying to invent a suppressor for his pistol. And it is implied that Lord Blackwood, like with the help of his alchemist friend, invents, like, chemical weaponry. Like, there are so many uh, liberties being taken with history where, like, actually, it was Sherlock who invented all of these items that we take for granted. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he invented the motor car, all right? I'm just saying. It is It is kind of implied he invented the motor car, but they never say it explicitly. They never say it explicitly. Um, but, but yeah, like, that, that's the thing, is that this, this movie somehow manages to blend an absolute down-to-earth, grimy London street, brawling, drinking, fighting mess of a murder mystery um, in with this kind of hyper-real magic, you know, like, black cultist, satanic craziness. And it, I don't... I can't entirely explain how it manages to blend those two elements, but it just does it in such a seamless way. I will say it does feel very Guy Ritchie. I mentioned last week on the show that I kind of had been watching a few Guy Ritchie things to get me up to speed, including, you know, Locked Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, A Man from Uncle, and that kind of very Guy Ritchie flavor of comedy and action is definitely well-practiced and well-executed in this film, but it is a very unique take on it. I think one of the other interesting things is looking at how this film compares to Elementary, because both of those are kind of in theory set after the plot of the books. Elementary implies that, you know, all of the business in London has happened and he's come over to America and now it's a, a new life. And then this implies that Jude Law's Watson and Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock have already had their adventures and this is when they're parting ways because John's about to go off and get married. It's good that they don't go out of their way to do something weird, like, for example, introduce a character who gets assaulted and then still ends up dating him. BBC Sherlock. <laughs> I, the, the thing that I'm curious about is why they don't take the other angle that Watson is already married and Sherlock is introduced into that relationship. They've all taken the opposite approach where Watson is trying to find love and Sherlock's getting in the way. Yeah, it is, it is a curious choice, but I guess it's one of those things that has just become the staple of Sherlock. And I, I suppose when you look at all of these modern adaptations, it's not like these modern adaptations are blind to each other. There's actually moments of the plot in this that feel very similar to moments in BBC and in Elementary. 
and they because they all released at kind of the same time that it's like as we said it's the holy trinity of sherlock adaptations where they're all good in their own right and bad in other ways and they all kind of reference each other and reference the books in these really creative ways that mean that no matter what your flavor of sherlock you have something to go to there's i don't think that there is anyone who would be interested in the premise of sherlock who wouldn't have an avenue to explore between these three adaptations i think that it is like it is unlikely that you've heard of one and not the others. Um, like I, I went for a very long time not having watched the other two, but I was vaguely aware of, of BBC Sherlock at least, you know, they kind of share the same, the same zeitgeist of, of space. Um, and particularly if you are a murder mystery fan, uh, you, you owe it to yourself to at least check out these three different properties because um, of how, you know, how they tackle the same subject in very creatively different ways. Yeah, and it also shows to some extent how crime fiction has evolved over the years, because we commented that the book, when we covered A Sign of Four, was very much about the swashbuckling adventure and was more like modern crime fiction than it was the Golden Age. And you can see that being reflected in BBC Sherlock. And then you have the other cast of modern uh, crime fiction in the form of elementary, and then you have the arguably more traditional but less swashbuckling Guy Ritchie films, it you know it it creates these three very distinct but related properties that really show like you know people often uh, dismay at adaptation between genres, but I think that because something like this was adapted in three different ways in such a close span of time, you can actually really see the strength of adaptation and why, to a point, it is really good to see these stories reimagined particularly when we were talking about how elementary, you know, it it really didn't need to be a Sherlock show, but it just did it because it would have felt uh, derivative if it hadn't. I mean, all three of these adaptations have used Sherlock as a vessel for telling a specific kind of story, which is interesting because when you look at a lot of adaptations and a lot of, a lot of flops, I, I think of video game movie flops a lot of the time when I think of this issue, but there's all sorts of different examples um, and usually when, when there's a big flop in an adaptation, it's said, well, it's because the adaptation wasn't faithful enough. Like they cut out these scenes or they changed this character to suit this particular narrative that is interesting at the time, or like they, they cut out the environmental messaging or, or whatever, but it, it's not, it's not necessarily about that. It's not necessarily about getting every detail exact, exactly right. It more often is about having a creative vision that you're trying to pursue as opposed to like a cash in or, you know, a conflicting kind of uh, message, I suppose, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Like when you're looking at an adaptation of a property, you, you need to assess it based on its own creative vision using the original book or, or whatever as a springboard rather than trying to be a, a direct copy. Yeah. Now, I, I think that's a good place to leave this discussion. We'll get into more spoilers and the second movie, which we are going to rail on, coming up later on the show. But we'd really love to know what your favorite of the three adaptations is. At Flex and Herds, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter is the place to get in touch. Herds. Mm, Flex. W- which was your favorite? Like the Guy Ritchie film. Okay. F- film. Singular. The Guy Ritchie film. Film singular. <laughs> It was. I, I enjoyed it the most, I, I think. I think that it is difficult to top uh, my, my nostalgia and my feelings of excitement 
uh, in the Sherlock Holmes uh, film, to be sure. I, I I definitely have to say, much to my own surprise, admittedly, that Elementary is still... Well, actually, it has become my favourite, having gone through and watched these. It was previously BBC Sherlock. Oh, really? I do want to discuss at the, the very end of this episode a different perspective I now have on the ranking of these three films. Sure. Anyhow, you are listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER 107.3. We are discussing the Holy Trinity of Sherlock Holmes adaptations. This week in particular, Guy Ritchie's 2009 and 2011 films. We will be right back with more of that. This is Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are about to commit our final sin against the world of literature by discussing our last movie for the moment. That is Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. Herds. Yes, flakes. Calling this movie a train wreck is an insult to train wrecks. Well, there is a train wreck in the movie, so, you know, we're already halfway to a proper train wreck. Yeah, I look, this movie is insanity. And I know I say that a lot on this show, particularly when talking about the past three episodes we've been doing, but this movie really is insanity. I have, I had blotted out when we were sitting and watching this movie together, I had realized I had completely forgotten, like not the plot points of how the movie ended, but the scenes, actually remembering the things that happened on screen, such as, not not limited to, a gypsy woman taking us across national borders via horseback, a weapons factory in Berlin exploding, and... Sherlock Holmes and Watson being shelled by artillery fire as they run through the woods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> Oh, go on, go on. Sherlock Holmes being picked up in a slaughterhouse and like solving the mystery while being like hooked by a meat hook through the chest, possibly being about to be murdered. It's insane. This entire movie does not make any sense. Now, it it should be said that the first movie's general plot is about Lord Blackwood, as we mentioned, trying to make himself seem like a mage using parlor tricks and creating chemical weapons. It's a great premise for a story. I loved it. The the one big misstep that I always hated in that first movie was the the scene in uh, the dry dock. Yes! Between the French strong guy and, and Sherlock and Watson, because it felt so out of place after an excellent action scene and if you just excise it from the movie it is the same film there is no plot point in that entire scene it's just a series of dumb gags and a boat being dropped on a man uh for some reason i'm gonna spoil it for you the problem with this scene is scale it is the only scene in the entire movie that moves its scale beyond like two or three people fighting Right? Like, that is as big as things get. Even in the climax of the movie, it is Lord Blackwood versus Sherlock talking for, like, 90% of the actual climax of the movie. In such a beautifully delivered scene for how ridiculous it is. Yes, exactly. The problem then becomes that in the second movie, as you say, artillery fire, meat hook solving the problem, going across national borders, the scale is through the roof. We accuse Professor James Moriarty of 
funding World War One. Yes, I forgot. I, you know what? I forgot to even mention the actual plot of the film, but you're right. <laughs> Moriarty is trying to start World War One by assassinating politicians uh, and, like, with with face swapping spies yes. that used to be rebels. <laughs> Where's my Father Knox twins rule when I need it? There is none. There is none. Look, technically, it was foreshadowed by those two guys who looked the same, but one of them didn't run to the other to help them because they weren't really brothers. They just looked like brothers. You see, it's ridiculous. The like the 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 way that this movie plays with foreshadowing in that it technically is there, but doesn't make any sense. Like mm-hmm. It's like, oh, look, Professor Moriarty has a ciphered book that you saw once on his shelf back when. And, you know, to be fair to the movie, it's a good clue. He has a horticulture book next to a bunch of dead plants. It, against the movie, you could say that perhaps he noticed his plants were dying and bought the book. That's the thing, right, is that these clues make sense when you write them out and start, like, like when the when the director is like writing connections between them, but on paper, if you just have there are dead plants in a horticulture book, like that doesn't actually mean anything. It's it's not the the clever Sherlock trick. It's it's not a bad clue. The problem is is that it never feels like it's needed because everything else is so ridiculous that by the time you get to the cipher, it's like, well, surely Sherlock has just solved this anyway. And he goes, ah, yes, I solved this anyway. And you're like, damn it. (laughs) The only moment that's like, it sort of feels like we're solving things in the moment is actually Watson solving a mystery when he's trying to figure out who the, you know, the, the body double is basically, He's trying to figure out who doesn't have their right face. Yeah, which which is my favorite scene in the movie because it's cutting between these two characters in a very grounded scene, just trying to notice who is acting weird in a room. And they're going through each of the character points and it's such a beautiful, that scene going back between the tension of Sherlock and Moriarty playing chess. Blitz chess, yeah. And Watson and, uh, not Renee, Renee's sister. I've, it oh doesn't goodness, matter. I can't None believe- of the, oh, don't remind me of the travesty of this movie. Ah, the fact that they get rid of both of the female leads for the last movie after, like, one scene. I don't- what happened there? I need to find out what happened. Yeah, they set them both up as very strong characters and then throw one off a train and bring in a bunch of other characters. They poison Irene off screen, basically. Like, it's ridiculous. I don't know what they were thinking. But anyway, the the scale of this movie gets ridiculous. We have artillery, we have all of these ridiculous things- and it goes from a pretty standard setup of, oh, look, someone is after Sherlock Holmes, it's Professor Moriarty, to being so out of proportion that it is absolutely ridiculous. Well, it, it turns into a spy movie. It, this kind of comes back to what I was saying about, you know, adapting uh, a series and having to have a very specific vision. But the vision from movie one to movie two changes so drastically from, like, down to earth, down is luck, kind of kooky, but, like, you know, like, gritty police thing through the streets of London to like multinational spy romp through the countryside. Like it's such a, it does, it doesn't work. I will say that that final scene with the tension of the chess game, it's, it's excellent. It's well done. It actually still means that I enjoy this film, even if most of it is completely ridiculous, but then herds 
we have the greatest cinematic triumph in error I think I've ever seen. Which which one are you re- which scene are you referring to? Because there's a lot of those in this movie. When Sherlock and Moriarty stand up and Sherlock starts going through his in his head fight description and Moriarty thinks back. It is the only plausible way that that film could have ended. It is ridiculous. It's off the walls. It makes no sense. It feels like it's straight out of a Japanese anime. It does. And having seen this movie three or four times over the years for various reasons, still have a ear-to-ear grin every time I watch that scene. It is ludicrous. It really is. It really is both the best and worst scene in the entire film simultaneously. Because you're right, we we get Sherlock's usual, you know, I'm going to narrate over my plan for this scene. And then Moriarty hijacks his internal narration to give his own internal narration. And they're just standing there smiling at each other the whole time. It's so dumb. Could you imagine that if, like, like the waiter walks out, like, could, could I get you guys a drink? And they're just, like, staring at each other for, like, 20 minutes. Like, it's, it's a ridiculous moment. Uh, and... It turns out that it wasn't even Sherlock's plan in the first place. Ah! It's it's beautiful. It is absolute chaos, and it is the kind of chaos that that film deserved after what it did for the entire rest of its runtime. It's madness. And I will say that the second movie does do some things a lot better than the first. Like, in the first movie, they decided to have a lot of extras who really just end up standing there, kind of distracting because they stand still and do nothing, whereas all of the extras seem a lot more actively used in the second film, and there's a lot more creative scenes, like when we go to the gypsy camp and when we go to the theater, for example, where everyone's moving and things are actually happening. We should give a shout-out to the theater scene for actually... Uh, choreographing, again, one of those weird moments where it's like, you're not sure if it's brilliant or terrible, where we we see uh, the bombing of, like, a bunch of politicians, I guess, at the same time as we're watching the climax of a very... Uh, it's, it's Don Giovanni, which I'm not familiar with, but it seems to be a very Faustian-style play where, like, the mortal is being taken up by the demons for his sins, and we we contrast directly the image of the demons coming in to, like, collect this guy... With and the way that they like throw their bodies around and kind of splay themselves around around the stage, it's contrasted directly with the bodies of the politicians sprawled out on the floor, which I actually really appreciate as a visual. Oh yeah, totally. And that scene, you know, I I kind of dislike the soundtrack in that moment because it does a really good job of integrating the film's themes with the themes from Don Giovanni. Um, but it's a moment where Hans Zimmer thought to himself, hmm, do you think they've forgotten I'm Hans Zimmer? And suddenly brought out all the brass when there'd been all of these beautiful, quiet, you know, gypsy-style violins previously. It was a bit weird, but the actual sound design and contrasting the operatic dialogue between, you know, the discussions at the dinner table and the bomb blast with the sniper shot in the background, it is it is a very elegantly choreographed scene, and it's probably the, the last moment before we tip the scale to being too huge. I will say, before we wrap this discussion up, these two movies, you would be better to just watch the first one. Yes, I agree. But I don't think you would be disappointed watching both of them, as long as you know what you're in for with the second one. Yeah, I suppose. I, I think that, uh, coming back to, like, ranking the three series, I would probably put the first Guy Ritchie movie at the top, Followed by Elementary, but then I, I I struggle to place 
a game of Shadows and and BBC Sherlock. I'd probably put BBC just a little bit higher if I'd watch further in the series. Game of Shadows is just such a weird movie that I'm struggling to figure out how I f- like where I would place it. Yeah, I think on their own, season one of BBC Sherlock is worse than Guy Ritchie's first movie, is kind of on par with Elementary. But once we include the follow-ups, I'd say Elementary is probably comfortably on top, followed by Guy Ritchie, followed by BBC Sherlock, because both of the other two properties go completely off the rails. Elementary goes off the rails, but it doesn't quite cliff dive like the others do. I'll have to check out the uh, the other seasons of Elementary going forward. Of course, if you would like to hear more discussion on later on these shows, we may do other specials on them down the line, but for just one week at a time, the first season of each, I think, was enough for us. Yeah, for sure. It has been an absolute pleasure going through, as, a, as I'll say again, the holy trinity of Sherlock adaptations. If you have to check out a modern crime fiction film and you haven't seen Knives Out, <laughs> go for one of these. Just go watch Knives Out. It's it's a it's a pretty good movie. It's a very good movie. It's a very, very good movie. Anyway, Herds, that means we can finally return to books. Yay. What book uh, are you dragging me back to? <laughs> okay. So I did a bit of a bit of searching on this one because, you know, we've been watching some modern adaptations and I wanted to find something a little bit more current. So we're not going back to the Golden Age, but we are going to something that feels like we're in the Golden Age. So I found a novel called uh, The Cuckoo's Calling, uh, which is written on paper by... uh, By Robert Galbraith. Robert Galbraith, who is a pseudonym for J.K. Rowling, author of the Harry Potter series. Oh, goodness. Yeah. I we, we've had some private discussions in the past about how perhaps Harry Potter might be uh, like a, akin to a murder mystery in many of its plots, and so we're going to see how J.K. Rowling themselves fared uh, tackling the murder mystery genre uh, straight on. So I'm very excited for this one, Flex. If, if I'm to be entirely honest, Herds, I have actively avoided this book. It's too late. You can't avoid it now. <laughs> I I will gladly read through it with you, <laughs> but I want you to know that I am scared. You better be. Yeah, yeah. It's the uh, the first novel in the Cormoran Strike series of detective novels. Um, and yeah, that's Cuckoo's Calling. We'll be doing up to part two, the ending of part two for this first Uh, this first week of reading and we'll see if you can solve the mystery fantastic well thank you once again for joining us watching all of these modern Sherlock Holmes adaptations as I said let us know on social media at Flex and Herds what your favorite was and if you'd like to hear more of our thoughts on them down the line we will see you next week with the first two parts of The Cuckoo's Calling Herds Flex Thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you for thank you for joining me. I appreciate our time together. You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER. We'll see you next time.